Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, the Great Commission. That Great Commission was not only for those original disciples, that commission applies to us as well. For some, that might be considered the Great Challenge, not the Great Commission. It's just not a comfortable thing to do, sharing your faith with others. Pastor Leighton Sheely is going to talk about that as he once again takes us verse by verse through the book of John, the 17th chapter. And let me share with you a quick thought uh, to ponder as we begin today. They will not seek. They must be sought. They will not come. They must be brought. They will not learn. They must be taught. From Church of the Highlands in San Bruno, here's Pastor Sheely. Now, up until this point, the sequence of giving and receiving has been obvious. I mean, the word must be given if it's going to be received, and it's got to be received if it's going to be useful. So all of that's very logical. But now here at the third point, Jesus goes on to talk about a certain knowledge that's required before believing. And this might kind of contradict some of our thinking because we've been conditioned to think in terms of believing is seeing instead of seeing is believing. For instance, uh, Jesus, in talking to Martha before he raised Lazarus from the dead, said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So even Jesus taught that believing results in seeing. The world says, see, show me and I'll believe it. Seeing is believing. Uh, the Bible says believing is seeing. But here, Jesus places uh, seeing or knowing before believing. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is that there's a certain kind of knowledge that must precede believing or faith, because otherwise it would be something more, no more than blind faith, which is no faith at all. And so there's a number of uh, convictions concerning Jesus that have to precede faith in him, and, they, and they, have to, they have to answer the central questions concerning the person and the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus indicates this by saying, They know with certainty that I came from you, And they know that everything you have given me comes from you. So before we can commit our lives to Jesus, we must be convinced that he is divine, that he is God incarnate, and that his teaching is true. And what he said he was going to do, that he he did, including the part of going to the cross to pay the wages of our sin. And if we're not convinced of these basic, foundational, fundamental truths, then our faith is based on something fictitious, imaginative, manufactured. So there's having given the word, received the word, come to know certain things about the Lord. And then the fourth step is faith or belief. Jesus said, and they have believed that you sent me. Now faith or belief is not blind trust, nor is it merely intellectual knowledge. It's a commitment that's based upon that knowledge that goes beyond uh, that it directs us to, to be willing to do things and step into things that we only have limited knowledge or in some cases even doubts about because we're following in obedience. It, it's taking action. And so sometimes we say in the biblical sense that faith is believing God as he's revealed in Christ Jesus and then acting upon it. That's faith, that's belief. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. 
Now, when Jesus said, all mine are yours and yours are mine, yours are mine, he was declaring equality with the Father. For what mere human would step into the face of God and say, everything you've got belongs to me? So he's claiming deity, he's claiming equality with the Father. Now, it is true that the Lord has a kind of love that is shown to all of the people of the world. The theologians call this common grace because it's common for everybody, even to those who reject the the gospel. For instance, he continues to plead for sinners to repent. He continues to extend the gospel invitation to them. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But Christ's intercessory work as high priest is only for those who belong to him because they have been given to him by the Father. In fact, there's really only one occasion of a a prayer recorded in the Scripture where Jesus prayed for the unsaved. And that's when he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. That's the only prayer that we have recorded in the Scripture where Jesus prayed for the unsaved. You see, however wide the love of God is and however open the invitation of Jesus is, there's a very special relationship of love and intimacy and disclosure and obedience and faith, dependence, joy, peace, and blessing between disciples and the Godhead. These are the themes that Jesus has talked about in the farewell discourse, the chapters that we have studied previously. So these verses then explain uh, from the perspective of our Lord why he prays for the disciples rather than others. And he gives us three reasons. The first is that Jesus prays for those who belong to the Father. If they belong to the Father, then the Father values them. And since the Father values him, then Jesus values them. You see, Jesus aligns his values with the values of the Father. And we should do the same thing. We should align our values with the values of the Father. Uh, What the Father considers sacred, we should consider sacred. What the Father considers sin, we should consider sin. And so forth. We should bring our values into alignment with the Father's values. Now, furthermore, a second reason is found in the second half of verse 9 and the first part of verse 10, for they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. Now, what is he meaning by this? Well, remember the first reason, what he's saying that they are yours. And here he's saying they are yours and mine together that both the Father and the Son have a joint interest in us. And that's the second reason why Jesus is saying to the Father, you should listen to this prayer and answer this prayer. And then there's a third reason, and that's found in the last portion of verse 10, where he says, I am glorified in them. Well, that begs the question then, how is Jesus glorified in the disciples? And how, by extension, how is Jesus glorified in us? And there's uh, several answers to this. For one thing, Jesus is glorified in saving us and by saving us. Spurgeon wrote, When the Lord lays hold upon a drunkard, a thief, an adulterer, when he arrests one who has been guilty of blasphemy, 
whose very heart is reeking with evil thoughts, when he picks up the far-off one, the abandoned, the desolate, the fallen, as he often does, and when he says, these shall be mine, and I shall wash them in my blood, I will use these to speak my word. Oh, then he is glorified in them. So Jesus is glorified in saving us. And he's glorified by his own people to the degree to which they live a holy life. And he's glorified by their confession before the world. And he is glorified by their efforts to extend the kingdom. See, it's more than just speech, it's activity as well. There's a lot of Christians who are lazy. They sit around, they do nothing while they're surrounded by people who are suffering people who are lonely, people who need compassion, help, and most of all need to hear the gospel. And we need to wake up people who are sleeping in our own church. We need to wake up Christians sleeping in churches all across America, all around the world. We need to wake up. We need to recognize the calling of God's Spirit to call us to works of service instead of enjoying comforts and luxuries and making them our values. The disciples went on to set aside life's comforts in order to give their time, talent, and treasure to Jesus' commission. You remember the commission Jesus gave, the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. The Great Commission. That great commission was not only for those original disciples, that commission applies to us as well. So on the basis of these reasons and Jesus' obedience, Jesus asked the Father to answer the prayer petitions that are going to be enumerated in the verses to follow. Now, in, in conclusion, James Montgomery Boyce wrote, There is throughout this whole passage, and indeed throughout this whole chapter, a ringing confidence about the future. In the voice of Jesus, he was with his men, the men that God had given him. He thanked God for them, and he never doubted that they would carry on the work he had given them to do. But let us remember who and what they were. A great commentator said, 11 Galilean peasants after three years, only three years labor. But it is enough for Jesus. And in these 11, he beholds the pledge of the continuance of God's work upon earth. Now, when Jesus left this world, he didn't seem to have great grounds for hope. He seemed to have achieved so little and to have won so few. And the great and the religious of the day had turned against him. But Jesus had that confidence which springs from God. And he was not afraid of small beginnings. He was not pessimistic about the future. He seemed to say, I have won only 11 very ordinary men. But give me these 11 ordinary men and I will change the world. Now you might be sitting here this morning and you consider yourself a very ordinary person. And because of that, you limit even your imaginations, wondering what God could possibly do with you. But let me suggest to you that God is an expert. 
in taking ordinary people and accomplishing extraordinary things through them and in them when they make themselves available to Him. Amen. That's Pastor Leighton Sheely, and this is a daily study called Study Verse by Verse from Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. I'm Mike Trout. He'll be back on Monday at this same time as we start a new message and begin another look at the book of John, the 17th chapter, working toward the 18th chapter, probably uh, at the end of next week. If you'd like more information about the church, it's on the web at churchofthehighlands.org. If you're looking for a church home, you might want to check out the service times and join us on Sunday. Again, that's churchofthehighlands.org. Have a great weekend and join us on Monday when once again Pastor Layton will open the Word of God and we will study verse by verse.